Hey, good to see you today, and uh, welcome to those that are joining us online. Uh, thanks for uh, plugging in today. And uh, this is my first time preaching two services for a while. And uh, so I practiced on the first crowd, okay? So I, I hope it'll be a little better this time. Anyway, good to see you today. Um, I want to start this way. 18 years ago, my father spent six months in ICU with heart failure. Uh, eventually, he passed. Uh, I miss him. He led me to the Lord. He mentored me in my faith, and I was blessed for eight years uh, to work as his associate in ministry in Everett, Washington. Well, while he was in ICU and basically on life support with hopes of being able to leave that section of the hospital, every day my mom would go to the hospital waiting room, and she'd stay there all day long, hours in that waiting room. There were times that she could was allowed briefly to visit my father, and there were times that she was simply waiting in that waiting room, hoping for some kind of good news from the medical staff. They all got to know her well, because every day she showed up for six months, for hours. And yet, she knew it wasn't all about waiting. There were others there that had loved ones in the critical care unit, others who were anxious and fearful and hurting, and my mom had the incredible opportunity to pray with many people and to pray for many people that God would bring healing and recovery and peace and comfort to families. After my dad passed, my mom continued to visit that very waiting room. Uh, in fact, she became a volunteer, an official volunteer. And every Friday she would show up and spend time in that waiting room. And I think in some ways her misery had become her ministry. We're going to talk, uh, she finally quit at about age 90, you know. We're going to talk about some people that were in the waiting room today. We've been going uh, into the book of Acts, looking at our church history, her church family, and um, the work of the Holy Spirit in the birth of the church. And we're going to look at some people that were in the waiting room. Now, I have to admit, just being honest with you, I was working on another passage. It was the one Jim preached last week. And I was like psyched because it was, you know, you shall be my witnesses. And, you know, I, I was finding material, you know. And then he told me, no, we moved you a week later and this is your passage. And I read through it and it's kind of like, you got to be kidding. You ever, you ever been reading like genealogies or reading on the tribes of Israel and you kind of go, I think I'll flip a few pages <laughs> to get to the good stuff, you know, the drama, the, the action, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of the way I felt. But once I got into the passage, you'll see what I mean. But once I got into the passage, it really started to open up for me, and I just found some really exciting things, and I want to share that with you today. I hope you find that exciting as well. But um, if you remember last week, Pastor Jim was speaking from Acts 1, verses 6 through 11, and the disciples are on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, and he's just about to go up before them and be taken into heaven. And he parts with these words... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And the interesting thing is that becomes the outline for the book of Acts. Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the known world. Now, interesting, what was he going to give them? Were they just going to receive the Holy Spirit because they didn't have the Spirit? 
Here's the interesting thing. Back in John 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. They already had the Holy Spirit. Now, he was going to give them something extra, an empowerment for ministry. And we're going to see that, I think, next week. It's a cliffhanger. Uh, We'll see that next week. And we'll see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the mission that God has called the church to do. In a sense, it's the birth of the church and the commission and the mission and the empowerment to do the task. Of course, the disciples are on that mountain. Jesus goes up before them. They are staring in the sky. I think they were waiting for Jesus to reappear. And suddenly there's two men in white standing beside them. They say, why are you guys looking up? This same Jesus that was taken up before you are is going to come back in the same manner as you have seen him go. And so what are they going to do? They're going to do what Jesus told them to do. He said, wait in Jerusalem because you're going to be empowered by the Spirit. Now, I want to say something about waiting. It's not just sitting around and doing nothing. It's not a passive thing. In fact, It's a spiritual activity. Waiting is actually a spiritual activity. I know there are times in our lives that we feel like we're just waiting. Maybe we think we're in some kind of holding pattern, unsure what to do next. Maybe we're at a place in life where we need to make a big decision. We're unsure of God's direction and plan for us. And it could be a new job. It could be a marriage. It could be relocating. It could be selling or buying a home. It could be deciding where to go to college. But there's no flashing lights and arrows. There's no angelic visitors showing up and saying, this is the way to go. And it can appear like we are waiting. And sometimes we have many choices to choose from, and that can be equally as confusing as no choice at all. (laughs) I remember when I was in Bible college, I was in my senior year, and um, I was looking to get into ministry. There was a church in northern Minnesota that invited me to come up, and in the Alliance, we call it candidating. It's basically where you go show them your stuff, and they show you their stuff, and you see if it's going to be a match. And anybody heard of McGregor, Minnesota? One guy this whole weekend. He grew up in Minnesota, so... um, Anyway, so I go up there to the church, and I'm trying to impress them, and they're trying to impress me. And and then they sent an invite for me to come be their pastor. At the same time, I had an invite from a church in Everett, Washington, to come be an associate, where I had done a, a summer internship. There was a church in Ashland, Montana, that was open. There was a Northwest District was talking to me about doing a church plant in Marquette, Michigan. And all these things had a certain amount of appeal, but... Now you got, it's one thing to have one choice. Now you got four choices. What are you going to do? Um, I was talking about this at one church and never finished out. I get to the end of my sermon and a guy yells from the back and goes, which church should you go to? <laughs> I went to Everett. That's what brought me out from Montana, basically. But that waiting stage can be a time of com- confusion, Um, But I want to share some biblical principles today, but I I don't want to share it in a way that this is like, okay, Bryce is sharing four or five steps to find the will of God for your life, you know, and you can just laminate that and keep it in your wallet and pull it out, ah, five steps for finding God's will. 
I, I want this stuff just to arise from the text, and it really does. It just arises out of the passage, but I think they're great principles, great principles for leading in God's direction into his will. So I hope you find these practical to your own lives as well. But let's begin in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So the distance, we see some distance here. They've come from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's walk, which you know what that means. Okay, I'll dial it in. 2,000 cubits. Oh, I'll, I'll narrow it down. Six furlongs. Actually, it's about three-quarter mile, okay? Sabbath day's walk. Not too far, really, from the Mount of Olives to the upper room. They wind up in this upper room. And by the way, upper rooms were typically higher than lower rooms. Start with the obvious when you're interpreting Scripture, okay? Um, but... They were really important rooms because, uh, and, and valuable rooms because they were all above the noise and confusion of the street down below. So meeting up in the upper room was a great place to be. Uh, rich people definitely use that as their living room, and they'd often rent that room out. And it's funny, we see um, that it could be a very familiar room for these first century Christians. Uh, do you recall when Jesus was with his disciples celebrating the Passover? What room were they in? Upper room. Do you remember the room that the disciples were in after Jesus had been crucified and buried? And they were hiding in fear and the doors were locked? They were in the upper room. And suddenly Jesus appears in the upper room. That would have been really spooky for sure. And here... They're waiting in the upper room. So I was thinking, what was perhaps the celebration room became the hiding room, and now is the waiting room. But here they are. But I want to say this first principle is this. They obeyed. Jesus has told them to wait in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they're going to do. If you're going to discover God's will in your life, simply begin by obeying with what you know. That's the best posture to be ready for what God wants to do in your life. Am I living in obedience? Notice I, I didn't say, am I living in perfection? <laughs> I believe a confessional life is a part of my spiritual life. And I'm sure thankful that God makes provision for forgiveness. Aren't you thankful? Because we mess up. No one lives the Christian life perf perfectly. But God says, if you confess, I'll forgive. I'm thankful. Luke, who's the author here, he's going to identify who is in this upper room. He starts, he goes, those present, verse 13, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we're given kind of a sampling of those present. It's not an exhaustive list because there are really 120 in the room. And I have a feeling we would even recognize some of the names of some of the others that were in that room. Maybe like Nicodemus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, a lot of New Testament characters that we, we discover, I'm sure, were in that room. But the disciples are mentioned, only 11. 
disciples are mentioned because the 12th is no longer with them, Judas. He mentions women. Now, there was a group of women that were a part of Jesus' ministry, and they even contributed out of their means in ministry with Jesus. Jesus' mother is pointed out, and this is really interesting. Jesus' brothers are pointed out. Uh, back in Mark 6, we, we see their names. It's James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now, what's kind of significant about that is now these brothers are among the believers. They're among the early church. And the interesting thing is, at one time, they thought their brother was out of his mind, perhaps even demon-possessed. But now they've come to recognize who their brother really is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're a part of the early church. But I was thinking about this. Can you imagine growing up in this family? It had to be some pretty weird family dynamics. Could you imagine playing hide-and-go-seek with Jesus? He would always seem to find you. How about playing cards? You think you can bluff him? He knows what's in your hand. And how about Mary? This perpetual mantra to the brothers. Why can't you guys be more like Jesus? Man. It would be a tough family to grow up in. But here the brothers are, they're among the believers, and they're all joined together constantly in prayer, which really is my second point. They were united in prayer. King James says it this way, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication. This word one accord, in harmony, of one mind. And by the way, I'm going to point some firsts out as we go through this. Uh, some firsts that you see for the early church. Here's one right here. This is the first time we see a public gathering of prayer among the community of believers. But they're of one mind and harmony. And I, I've noticed this about prayer. Um, I, I bet you've recognized this too. When you get together with a group of people and pray, by the time you're done with that prayer, you feel like you've actually grown closer to one another. There's, there's a harmony and a oneness that comes from just spending time praying with others, a shared desire, a mission, a natural unity just flows out of prayer. And I, I get the idea this is what was going on in the early church. The prayer was uniting them. And at the same time, their supplication. They are seeking the Lord in earnest. You know, sometimes in our prayer life, it can be easy to be really passive. It can be easy to be very routine in prayer. But they were seeking the Lord with with a certain amount of desperation. I was thinking about Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This suggests a certain amount of uh, earnest, desperate prayer. And that's what was going on with this group of believers. So they're obedient. They're united in prayer. Now let's take, uh, take it up in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago go through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. See, there's some good stuff in this passage here. Actually, you know, think about it, Luke wrote this, 
Luke was a doctor. He's not very squeamish, is he? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. There's a couple of things I want to mention here, because sometimes people find differences of accounts, and then they think there's discrepancy in Scripture uh, one of them is we see in the gospel, Judas hung himself. Here we see him um, kind of falling headlong and his body bursting open. How do you reconcile the two? Typical uh, explanation of this that I think reconciles the two is the fact that he hung himself, perhaps the rope broke eventually, and the rest followed. Don't use your imagination. Uh, the other thing is um, it says Judas bought a field. We have no record of Judas buying a field in the Gospels. What, after he had sold out Jesus, he was given 30 pieces of silver by the religious leaders, but out of remorse, he took it back and gave it back to them. Well, they were not going to keep that money. That was blood money. And so they purchased the field. But in essence, you could say Judas bought the field. That was his money. So there's not a discrepancy there. It makes sense. And I was thinking about this. Not only did, did Judas buy the field, but he also bought the farm, literally, right? Well, let's continue. Peter steps up. I know it's, the last audience thought the same. It's a groaner. Should we all just go to lunch? It's Peter, uh, he steps up in leadership before the believers, lest anyone think that Jesus was a victim of an unfortunate accident and that the betrayal of Judas somehow messed up God's plan. It was really all a part of God's divine plan. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. This was according to plan. I realize I don't understand or comprehend all the ways that God works. Sometimes something that seems really bad actually in God's economy is a very good thing. I was thinking about the Pharaoh of Egypt was an absolute tyrant to the enslaved Israelites, yet God produced something very good out of it. In fact, when I read God hardened Pharaoh's heart, I realize I don't fully comprehend the ways of God, but see what God accomplished through it. And Judas actually fulfilled Scripture this betrayal was all a part of God's plan. It tells me something else. It wasn't a win by the dark side. God was sovereignly in charge the whole time. Before the cross, Jesus predicted that he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was with his disciples. And in John 13, he, gave, he said he would give a subtle sign as to who the betrayer would be. He said to the one that I give, the bread that I dip, and hand to one of the disciples, and he handed it to Judas, and nobody picked up on the clue. After the resurrection, Jesus was with his disciples, and he said to his disciples in Luke 24, he said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That must have been quite a conversation. <laughs> walking through the scriptures and sharing all the tie-ins for 
his suffering and entering into glory. Here's another first. This is the first time we see Peter actually quoting Scripture. And isn't it interesting, going back to earlier verses, he, taught, he said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be filled, fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Wow. David's actually writing for David, but prophetically writing for Judas. And Peter recognizes this. What applied to the psalmist prophetically applies to Judas. And interesting, in the Gospels, Jesus quotes from these same scriptures and even applies them to himself, parts of these scriptures. But here's my point, the third point. They relied upon God's word. They were getting their direction from God's word. Know this, any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit that goes against God's word is wrong. The Holy Spirit will never lead you contrary to his word. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth, not away from truth. And you can rely on God's word. In fact, it says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In Romans 12, it talks about the renewing of our mind. It's interesting how the wording is. It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Peter continues, he says, Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord went in and out among us, from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us in his resurrection. Basically, what he's saying is we need a replacement for Judas. Now you ask, why? Well, an odd number of disciples doesn't sound right, does it? And if you're a Seahawks fan, the 12th man is very important. <laughs> but seriously, how did Peter know they needed a replacement? It all came from Scripture. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but I found something else kind of interesting. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, and we see a prophetic fulfillment that's going to take place in the future, and it involves 12 disciples, not 11. And I don't think it's because Judas is coming back to the team. Uh-uh. Here's what it says. Jesus said this. I tell you the truth at the renew of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Interesting. If we look in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, there's a description of the new Jerusalem. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Saul fits in Scripture. And there's a prophetic fulfillment that will be fulfilled by 12 apostles. This was God's plan and preparation. I believe God, by His Spirit, sovereignly led His followers to this appointment, which would fulfill Scripture. We see a couple more firsts. It's the first church business meeting and the first selection of leadership for the church. Qualifications for that 12th apostle, one who had been with the Lord from the beginning. All the apostles were firsthand witnesses of Jesus, knew him personally, witnessed the resurrection, traveled with him. One who was known and trusted among the disciples, one who was witness of the resurrection. So, they proposed two men. Joseph called Barsabbath, also known as Justice and Matthias. 
Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Not very complimentary. They know where he went. Notice they're still active in prayer. We know nothing about these two men that they propose. Likely a part of a larger group of disciples. We know back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 disciples to go two by two into ministry. But now is where it gets kind of weird. Acts 1 verse 26. Then they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Isn't that interesting? Drawing lots. Casting lots was like drawing straws or rolling dice or flipping the coin. It was a common way of making old uh, decisions in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, we see the Roman soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothing when he was arrested. The objects used in casting lots were typically small pieces of wood or stone that were numbered or inscribed with the names of those from whom the choice was being made. They were put into a container or folded up into one's garment, shaken together, then cast out. And the lot that fell out first determined that that would be a clear sign of who that person would be. It was seen as a legitimate method of determining God's will. In fact, 70 times in the Old Testament, we see the casting of lots. Seven times in the New Testament. But a scripture here out of Proverbs, I think, really says it to what the mindset was of those that were casting lots under God's direction. Proverbs 16, the lot is capped, cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You roll the dice, but God makes the decision. I know what somebody's thinking. Oh, yeah, if I just pray about it, and I'm going to head to the casino after church today. Should we roll the dice to determine God's will today? I'm going to say this. I've spent enough years in ministry to know that this actually might be a better way than how many people make decisions. Some people base their decisions on unusual signs or circumstances. I remember a guy coming to my office. This was years ago. And he was dating this girl and he was considering proposing and he was so excited, he came into my office and he goes, I heard from God. I was driving down Smoky Point Boulevard and every time I came to a stoplight, it was green. God tell, is telling me it's green lights to go ahead. And I was thinking, you know, what if all those lights were red? Would he have concluded the opposite? Other people make decisions on what they want, period, and then ask God to bless it. Other people want their own way, and they want it confirmed by somebody in authority, so they look to a counselor or a pastor. And if they don't like what one person says, they just go find another that finally says what they want to hear. This method reminds me of the guy who went to his doctor, and after some tests and a blood draw, his doctor told him he needed to eliminate caffeine and go on a strict diet. Well, instead, he went out and found another doctor. (laughs) And some people just operate plain on their feelings. If it feels right, it must be the Holy Spirit. 
But many times, what one identifies as their, as their feelings is totally contrary to God's revealed will. Things can feel good and right and still be wrong. By the way, this is the last time in the scriptures that we see the casting of lots. Why do you think? Now the Holy Spirit is going to empower the believers, and he is going to be the spirit who leads and guides and directs and speaks. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see the leading role of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit in the ministry of the early church. He will guide the believers into the will of God. So you can put your lots away or your dice. Here's my final point. And I I think this is what we find even through the method of casting lots is they stepped out in faith and made a decision. They stepped out in faith and made a decision. You see, waiting is a spiritual activity. They obeyed right where God wanted them to be. They had prayed alongside of others with a spirit of unity. They had relied upon God's word and they took a step of faith. And in that step of faith, they had to trust God. You know, sometimes there's struggle in the waiting. If there were no uncertainties, it would eliminate the necessity of faith, but God always leaves room for faith. And there are things that he wants to teach us while we wait about his care and his love and his goodness. There's a scripture I've been camping on probably for the last two months. The first part of the scripture says, uh, lead me in your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. And the more I've thought about that, at first I thought, that seems like an oxymoron. Um, Lead me in your way is like, okay, just show me the path, God, cut me loose. But then why is he adding, so that I may rely on your faithfulness? Now it sounds like I need the Lord. (laughs) I kind of look at it differently now to say, part of the teaching, by the way, teach me your way, Lord, is really the way that first phrase goes. Part of the teaching is us learning to express faith and trust in God. Because, you know, if God just laid out the path for you, we would just head down the path and, you know, we wouldn't even think about God. But he always leaves room for faith that we have to keep coming back to him and say, God, God, what do you have for me? And we keep praying and God, lead me and guide me. He wants us to stay connected with him in this whole process of his will, not just find his will and head off in our own direction and say, good, got the path, but that we might rely on his faithfulness. I don't know about you. Maybe you're in a place of trying to discern God's will. Maybe you feel like you're in the waiting. Are you living today in obedience? Are you earnestly seeking God in prayer? Are you relying on God's word? And if so, maybe God's asking you to step out in faith and trust him and rely on his faithfulness. I'd love to pray for us as we close the service. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who lives within, who guides us and leads us into truth. 
And Lord, I, I pray for us here today. I don't know what each person is going through. Maybe there are major decisions on hearts and minds today. Lord, I pray that you would direct these thoughts from Scripture today and these principles from Scripture in ways that would be pleasing to you. Lord, help us all to live lives on faith that we will have hearts continually directed toward you and connected with you and hearts that are seeking you earnestly. And may we continue to find your will to be good and pleasing. So Lord, I thank you for each one here today and those that are online as well. And uh, pray, that, pray that you bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming today. Have a great Sunday.